Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are back on another edition of Pot of Gold Extra Point with Carter Carls. My name is Tom Noy, and we're from the South Bend Tribune, Notre Dame Insider, here to discuss yet another win on a Friday, on a Saturday, Thanksgiving week. I don't know what day it is. What day is it? Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We are taping this as we speak at 1025 in the morning on Saturday. I am coming to you from a frosty South Bend, Indiana, while Carter Carls is holed up in his hotel room in North Carolina, having watched the Irish move to 9-0 overall, 8-0 in the ACC, with a 31-17 victory over North Carolina. Notre Dame, number two team in the country, North Carolina, number 25. And I'm coming in hot early today on this one, Carter. I've got a couple issues with North Carolina fans. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> Are they not basketball related? It's that I think I think I I think I'm I'm starting to get the gist of what it would be like to cover Notre Dame or uh, North Carolina basketball, given the attitude and the disposition of the fan base right now. Because I've uh, it, it, and it, this was this was at like eight o'clock in the morning. I had already gotten three emails from obvious North Carolina fans. One of them said that Nor- how dare you talk about North Carolina that way. North Carolina had Notre Dame on the ropes in the second half. And I responded to him and said, if they had him on the ropes in the second half, if you're going to have the number two team in the country on the ropes in the second half, shouldn't you at least score some points? <laughs> right? I mean, you're not wrong. So he says, North Carolina had Notre Dame on the ropes. Well, North Carolina didn't score any points. <laughs> Uh, and, and then another North Carolina fan is emailing me and saying, how dare you talk down and talk so poorly about North Carolina? Notre Dame just registered one of its, one of its most historic wins in program history by beating upstart North Carolina. And I kind of soft shoot it and said, you know what? I don't know if you follow Notre Dame football much. I don't know if you know the history of Notre Dame football, but I don't know if you'd put this one in maybe the top 100 greatest wins in Notre Dame football. There's quite a few big wins. I mean, over the years. I mean, this isn't USC. It's not Michigan. It's not Michigan State. It's not pick your uh, other rival with, with Notre Dame, any na- game against Navy, any bowl game, any national championship game. Ah, it's North Carolina in November. Irish win 31-17, 9-0. Let's just move on from them and talk more about what Notre Dame did right because they did an awful lot right on Friday afternoon down at Chapel Hill. To me, the the biggest takeaway from this game is it's all about who Brian Kelly put in charge as both coordinators. Both of them had 
tall task today. Tommy Reese, an offensive coordinator, was without two of his starting offensive linemen. Had to put in Zeke Carell at center. Had to put in Josh Lugg at right guard. And then well, on shaky at times on the offensive line, but they kind of kind of muddled their way through that one for sure. And they were able to, I think, through great play calling and being able to be balanced between going ball control and then going aggressive. I thought there was a perfect balance between that. And then defensively, you're playing one of the best offenses in the country. You're without Kyle Hamilton for a majority of the game. And they balled out. They held them under 300 yards. They Mm -hmm. shut them out in the second half. No team has shut out North Carolina in a half all season. And so I just can't say enough when when you think of – both of these hires at the time, Clark Lee was kind of like the consolation prize of Mike Elko leaving. It's kind of like, Ugh, you know, okay, I, I guess we, we kind of like this guy. And then in Tommy Reese, it was even worse. It was like, this guy is 28 years old and he's just Brian Kelly's friend. Like we don't like this. So that's what the fan base was projecting. And look where it's at now. Both of them are – I mean, they're, they're one of the best coordinating duos in the country. Clark Lee is probably the lead for the Broyles Award this year for the best assistant. And I just can't say enough about the faith that Brian Kelly had in those two guys and how it ended up paying off. I mean, it, <laughs> that, was, that was the best um, maybe collaborative performance on both sides of the ball that they've had all season, even better than the Clemson game, just because of how the defense showed up in critical moments and getting that shutout in the second half. And then just what the offense was able to do despite the circumstances. And again, the balance between, I just loved how, how they went, they'll go ball control and then they're, but they're also not playing to lose. They'll, they'll take the shot to Javon McKinley down the field. They'll, they'll take a shot down the field. So um, I thought it was a greatly called game by Tommy Reese. And I thought Clark Lee's adjustments after those first couple drives were, were really special. I love the quote from Brian Kelly afterward when he was asked about the example, or he was asked about the coordinators in Tommy Reese and Clark Lee, and and he said, and I said to Tommy, you want to be aggressive, stay aggressive. Let's not go back and sit on this thing. We've been really good at being aggressive. Let's keep doing it. And that was leading into, that quote leads into the 97-yard drive there to take the lead, ultimately a lead they don't relinquish, and that that was the drive where, they hit what, what Brian Kelly called, said they, they call it piston, the deep post to McKinley. And that was, that was like one of the few times, I think, yesterday where you just saw Ian Book be very determined and say, okay, I'm just letting this thing rip. I'm yeah. going right down the field with it, and I'm, go- I'm just going to let this thing go. He, he hits Javon McKinley. They, do that, they, they finish off that 97-yard drive. So I just love the fact that Brian Kelly it, it talks to Tommy Reese like that and says, you, you've been aggressive all game. Like, like keep doing it. Let's, let's keep our foot on the gas and keep rolling with this thing. And that's what they did. Yeah, and, and then you look defensively, and six straight game by Notre Dame's defense holding their opponent to under 100 yards rushing. I mean, that's incredible when you consider this North Carolina team had two backs that were averaging over 100 yards rushing per game. Mm-hmm. Carter, Javante Williams. And, you know, you consider what they've done to those two guys. You consider holding Travis Etienne to 28 yards on 18 carries. Now, sure, there's been some blips here and there in, in the secondary, but 
what they've been determined to do, they've been able to accomplish. When they've made adjustments schematically, they have worked. And to me, that's all coordinating, and, and that's this defense coming together. I thought this defensive line had one heck of a game, getting six sacks and, and really getting in the face of Sam Howell. I mean, there were, there were points looked like he was seeing ghosts. And then the linebackers, Maris Lufau, what a game for him. And Drew Wyatt, that? what a game for him. You think, okay, the breakout game for Jack Kaiser was South Florida. The breakout game for Shane Simon was Clemson. And the breakout game for Maris Lufau was yesterday against North Carolina. Three buck linebackers. It's, it's great that Notre Dame has that ability just based off the situation, riding the hot hand. And then for Drew White to play the way that he did was huge for this defense. He, he received the game ball. He was the guy, I thought, like the unsung hero until he received the, the, the game ball. Uh, because he, he just made a lot of plays that you, you don't see on the stat sheet, it seemed like. And I thought just collectively the front seven had maybe their best game of the season. Uh, and, yeah, just, again, a complete game from both sides of the ball. But can't say enough about what this run defense has become. And, you know, six straight games, I would expect them to hold Syracuse and Wake Forest under 100 yards too. So, I mean, they're on a roll right now. Maris Lufau came into Saturday's or Friday's. I keep thinking today is Sunday. Came into Friday's game with five total tackles this season. Guess how many tackles he made on Friday? Six. Five. Five. So he he basically doubles his production. Like he was all over the place. Yeah. His hair his hair flying around, and it was it was like the the, the perfect adjustment and the perfect piece to put into that defense to kind of slow down that North Carolina offensive attack where, where Lou Fowles maybe, maybe a little bit better than Shane Simon in space and able to take away the slants the way he was able to do that. But like Lou Fowles and, and Drew White, it seemed like with, with the way the defensive line was dominating the line of scrimmage, those two guys were just running wild the entire second half. And to limit them to 57 snaps I think was huge because mm-hmm. you saw Notre Dame's defensive line rotating – second possession of the game. They were pulling in Riley Mills, Obiakofu, guys that are second string, third string, because I think they expected, especially with how the first couple drives went, oh, this is going to be a high-flying, high-scoring, 100-possession-each kind of game. But the way that Notre Dame was able to do ball control and then the way that Notre Dame's defense was able to get three and outs, four and outs, they were able to only play 57 snaps. And I think – in a lot of the games this year, Notre Dame has not been on the field that much, their defense, and it's allowed them, especially with how deep they are uh, at linebacker and on the defensive line, it has allowed them to be fresh. It's allowed them to win fourth quarters. You've seen them play so well down the stretch in a lot of games. And I think that's where you're starting to see the ball control stuff, the time of possession stuff really pay off because – when you're on the field for only 57 snaps a game, you know, you're going to make the most of those 57 snaps. Um, I remember a couple of years ago when, when Notre Dame in 2018, a, a team that was great defensively, they were on the field quite a bit in, in, in a, quite a few of those games. And they didn't have the depth. You know, I remember at safety, Lohi Gilman and Jalen Elliott, they barely ever took a rest. Well, now they've got a safety rotation. Now they've got a linebacker rotation. Now they've got a deep line rotation that's deep. 
Um, they can withstand injuries. They can withstand Kyle Hamilton being out for targeting. It just shows you the deep, the, the, the depth of this roster defensively, and it shows you how, you know, controlling the time possession, ball control, and getting these three and outs are huge because it keeps you fresh. And I think that's a huge thing for this defense. Time of possession on Friday at North Carolina. Notre Dame had the ball for 35 minutes and four seconds. Carolina had the ball for only 24 minutes, 56 seconds. And like we talked about earlier, mentioned earlier, that big drive to open the third quarter, early in the third quarter, where Notre Dame went 97 yards. They chewed up about five minutes of the clock. And it really put North Carolina behind the proverbial eight ball because it was like, man, we got to score. It was almost like it was almost like you're playing against Navy. Like we got to score because you give the ball back to Notre Dame and they're going to chew up three, four, five, six more minutes of the clock. So it really threw the North Carolina offense and what they like to do totally out of rhythm. Like you mentioned, yeah. two guys averaging 100 yards rushing coming in, and they Carter and Williams they combined for 85 yards rushing. That's it, both <laughs> of them combined. Carter had 57, eight carries, never a factor. Williams, 28 yards on 11 carries, never a factor. So the way this defense played, I mean, you, you talk about, you talk about we, we, we're almost in December, next week's December. Talk about something that you can really build on. The way this defense played, let alone without probably their best playmaker in Kyle Hamilton, that's really something they can hang their hat on as they, as they move forward to the last month, of the, the last two games of the regular season. Again, it was so, like, those first couple of possessions, they were just picking on Tariq Bracey. And they were picking yeah. on Tom Crawford, who, you know, this season, I don't know if it's been all that great for him. You know, there was one time where he clearly should have helped Tariq Bracey deep, but instead he just said, oh, I'm going to take the tight end. And then, yeah, I think I'm going to stay here and let the guy go run pet right past me. Right. And, I mean, the way it was going, it was not going to look good. And, fortunately, Notre Dame – they said, hey, we're going to put Clarence Lewis in there. We're, we're going to mix a couple things up. And those adjustments really paid off. Um, offensively, you know, you, you saw, I think it was the first time since October 10th they didn't score on their first possession. Um, and I don't know if they, like, really changed uh, anything that they were doing. They just, you know, I mean, it, it was again, it was the balance between being aggressive and – going to ball control, and they were able to exploit North Carolina's defense uh, in quite a few ways because North Carolina doesn't have a great defense. But ultimately what I saw from the offense was just Ian Book making plays no matter what it took, no matter if the pass was underhanded. or yeah, What's up with that? Come on. I mean, it, it truly – you know, we talked about how – the Clemson game was huge for him. I think this game may have been bigger just because it gave – like you could just see his confidence grow and grow and grow. You've seen the progression through this season where he's trusting his receivers more. He's trusting his arm more. He's – you know, I think he used to scramble when he was nervous. Mm -hmm. I think he scrambles when he's confident. I think there's a big difference there. When he scrambles now, when he's, you know, ditching the pocket, it's because he's confident that he has the chemistry with his receivers that they're going to break off their route and find him or he's going to find a guy in the soft spot of the zone because he got to a certain spot on the field and was able to angle himself 
the right way. He is doing it now, not out of, you know, not out of this sense of urgency in terms of, oh my gosh, I don't know what's going to happen. It's this, oh, I know I'm going to make this play, so I'm going to escape and make the play. And I think that's huge for him because I think the mental aspect, you know, everyone talks about the physical aspect. I thought it was the mental aspect that had been holding him back. Yeah. He had happy feet, dancing around the pocket. He'd miss an open receiver. Like he wouldn't even throw to an open receiver. And he still has trouble with that at times. But for the most part, he has found that inner confidence in himself. He said after the game, you know, I think I'm a top 10 quarterback in college football. And How can he not be? I think he's a top five quarterback. Like I've, I've been in the Ian Book camp since he became the starter. I was there a couple of years ago when Notre, Dame, when Notre Dame was at North Carolina. Tyler James and I covering it for the Tribune where he made his first career start. And talking with Mike McGlinchey afterward, it, it, Mike McGlinchey was like, we believe in Ian just as it would be Brandon Wimbush or whoever's back there. Like Mike McGlinchey tried telling us then, like, this kid's just got it. He knows how to play the game. He knows how to play the position. He understands the pressure that comes with playing the position. And nothing really phases him. And to, to have Ian Book not be listed in whatever story that was by USA Today as a top 10 quarterback in the country, like just by default, you should be a top 10 quarterback in the country if you're playing the position at the University of Notre Dame. But I think, I think he's a top five guy. Like all he does is win. He's 29-3 and three as a starter. He's not going to throw for 600 yards. He's not going to dazzle you with a cannon right arm. But, like, the plays that he makes with the, the, the flip to Michael Mayer that you wrote about in, in today's ND uh, Insider, that's, I mean. Unreal. That's I mean, a mark of a good college quarterback. That was, that was, that was the play of his career. I, I'm <laughs> serious. It was the play of his career. If there was one highlight from his whole career, it is that play. It was that special. I remember – Pete Sampson of the Athletic was next to me, and I, I just was like, "Are you kidding me? Like, did that really just happen? Uh, like, we we were just in disbelief when that happened." And, and it shows you the improvisation skills, what he can do with his feet. You know, it feels like every opponent now, their coach, their their uh, star players are always saying, "Man, we gotta account for his feet because mm-hmm. he is he is quick. He he can escape pressure." I mean, honestly, they only had two sacks yesterday and only one sack after the first – after play number three. Yeah, the first series. No, after play number three, they had, a, they had a sack on play number three on the first series, and then they only had one more sack the rest of the game. Right. Ian Book was under pressure all night. He, there could have been like eight sacks, but there was only one from the fourth play of the game onward. That's crazy to me, and it, and it showed you – just what he was able to do. And, and I was curious because, yeah, they, they cited – it was Brian Kelly who cited this after the game, this USA Today article that mm-hmm. uh, it was from earlier this week, ranked the top ten quarterbacks. And I think, like, the first six or seven totally get. Like, Kyle Trask, Justin Fields, Trevor Lawrence, Mac Jones, Zach Wilson. I would say those are the top five quarterbacks in college football. Then you get in the Michael Penix at Indiana, Sam Howell, Derek King, Desmond Riddler at Cincinnati, Carson Strong at Nevada is number 10. You got to think Ian Book is better than a few of those guys at the very I'm still I'm still going top five. If you're the quarterback at Notre Dame and you're 9-0 and you're the second-ranked team in the country, you better have a really good elite 
quarterback. Not saying future NFL first-round draft pick quarterback, but you better have a good quarterback there. Before we talk more about Ian Book, about Notre Dame beating North Carolina, let's hear a word from Tyler James. He's going to tell us about Coors Light. You know, life today is kind of a lot. We're always forced to be on. But every now and then, it's important to just stop, crack open a mountain cooled Coors Light, and chill out. So when you choose to turn off, choose the one beer that's literally made to chill, Coors Light. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process. It's cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. The mountains on Coors Light cold activated bottles and cans turn blue when chilled to perfection. When your game is on this weekend, or any game for that matter, Make sure your refrigerator is stocked up with the one beer that's made to chill, Coors Light. When life has got you on the go, 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 take a minute, relax, and enjoy a cold Coors Light. You can even have Coors Light delivered to your door by going to get.coorslight.com. Celebrate responsibly, Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Back on the Pot of Gold Extra Point podcast, Carter Carls, Tom Noy, talking Notre Dame, talking North Carolina, the Irish moved to 9-0. 8-0 in the ACC with a 31-17 victory. Ian Book, top 10 quarterback. Top five quarterback, in my opinion. Top five. I'll go top That's 10. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> hey, top here, five. Here's the important stat with Ian Book. He just broke the record for consecutive completions without an interception, or consecutive pass attempts without, without an interception. At 237, he passed Brady Quinn, who had 226. And – I think that's – the thing with Ian Book is I thought earlier in the year and really up until the Clemson game or maybe the Pittsburgh game, he was really just a game manager. Like, mm-hmm. that's what he was. He was a glorified game manager. It was ball control. It was run the ball. He wasn't going to make any plays that dazzled you vertically. But what's been incredible is this month and really since that Pittsburgh game – it has completely flipped. It's almost like he went from being a freshman to a senior in like a span of one week. And then he just took off after that. Like, like, cause he was not playing particularly well uh, up until that Pittsburgh game. Uh, he even admitted himself that he was very upset with how he played against Louisville mm-hmm. and went all out with his preparation uh, the following week. But Again, I think it's just a mental thing. I think, I think it had to take some time for him to get chemistry with those wide receivers because you look at the first four games of the season, he was just not clicking with them at all. There was nothing. It was, yeah, it was who do I go with? Like who can I – almost like who can I trust? The, the first week against Duke, when, the last time he did throw a pick, mm-hmm. it was Joe Wilkins. Because, and then Ben Skoranek hurts his hamstring that game. And – uh, Braden Lindsay is still kind of on the fringe of is he healthy? Is he ready? Can he contribute? Kevin Austin, not a factor at all because of the broken foot now. He's gone for a year. So he was really – Avery Davis wasn't really much of a factor. He was really looking for that one guy, and I think he's now found him in, in Javon McKinley. And to a, a, a second extent, Ben Skoranek is maybe 1A, but I think – Finding Javon McKinley and being able to establish some sort of rapport with him, Javon McKinley on Friday, six catches, 135 yards. Did we ever think we'd watch Javon McKinley make six, six catches for 135 yards in a game? Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing is it's not just book. Obviously, give him a ton of credit, but these wide receivers too have come such a long way. 
Mm-hmm. Vince Skoranek had the hamstring injuries that lingered. He had an injury last year that ended his career at Northwestern. Uh, it, it just was not looking great for him. And, and he was a guy that was kind of counted out, not fast enough, nothing elite about him, was what everyone was saying. And look what he's done in the red zone, getting the ball. Uh, look, 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 look what he's done as a running back. Like, yeah, as, a running back as a running back. Come on. And then Javon McKinley. This was a guy who, you know, he had his off-the-field issues. And he was an afterthought on the team. He was like a third-string wide receiver, uh, a fourth-string guy on the 2018 team. Didn't know if he'd be on the 2019 team. Didn't know if he'd be on this team because he could have just gone on with his life uh, after graduating. Uh, Avery Davis, he could have easily transferred. All the position switches. He was supposed to be a quarterback for this team. And it's three guys that they're relying on who are all afterthoughts and they're all counted against. And now here they are. And I think that's the same thing with Ian book. And I think that's the reason why they've been able to click so well. When you talk to Ben Skoranek, he always talks about how the reason why he and Ian book clicked immediately is they're both chip on their shoulder kind of guys. They've always felt like they've been counted up against. They've always been the hard worker who, you know, may not have the most talent, but they're going to outwork everybody. That's been their mindset really their whole lives. And I think the fact that they've all come together and and done what they've done just speaks to that, like, collective mentality that they all share of, like, hey, not everyone believes in us, but, but like, we're going to ball out. And and so I think that's kind of a, a – uh, like an admirable thing to see. It's kind of like the underdog rising to the occasion uh, with this group. And so, um, yeah, I was not expecting it. Like, I don't think anybody was expecting McKinley Davis and Skoranek to be what they have before the year. Everyone was talking about Kevin Austin. Everyone was talking about Braden Lindsay. You had me blabber on about Jordan Johnson. Uh, <laughs> president, president of the Jordan Johnson fan club, Carter Carls. He's going to be a player. He's going to be oh, easy. He's just a freshman. Freshmen yeah. don't really play here. Yep, yep, yep. I, I bid on it. I bid on it. But, hey, I was, I was on the Kyron Williams fan club before he walked in the door, and so it will happen for Jordan one day, I think. We'll see. But, anyways, yeah. Just a just a a cool thing to see for this wide receiver group uh, to just kind of come from where they did and and where they are now. It's just it's been pretty special. It's one of those things where when you're a writer, you're like, wow, there's endless things to write about because you feel like there's so many people on these on this team that have a chip on their shoulder. Javon McKinley, thirty catches, four five hundred and forty nine yards for the season. Avery Davis, 19 for 282. Ben Skoranek, 17 for 273, but five touchdowns. Like, all Ben Skoranek does when he goes on the road is score touchdowns. Pittsburgh, Boston College, North Carolina. He did it yesterday on a, on a reverse. So, yeah, they just, they just keep showing those little, that, that little something. If they can ever get guys like Braden Lindsey and Lawrence Keyes more involved in the rotation, he's – just imagine, just imagine the, the the kind of options and the kind of weapons that Ian Book is going to have to throw to, be it against Syracuse or Wake Forest or Clemson or whoever comes next after that. Absolutely, and we continue to see Michael Mayer 
get more involved in the offense. Um, I think they were a little cautious with him earlier in the season. Just, you know, he's a true freshman. They're not going to unload the playbook on him. But, but now he's running these option routes and he's mm-hmm. running these, like, very complex uh, kind of plays that, you know, you would, you would feature a, a veteran in. And, and he's – I mean, and, and also he's capable and has the confidence and chemistry with Book already – to do this backyard football business where it's like, Oh, Hey, my route was completely different, but because you're scroll, you're scrambling to your left, I'm going to break it and meet you at this point, And we're just going to make eye contact and we're going to make it happen. Basically. And I'm, and I'm going to flip it to you underhand and we're going to make it work. Yeah. And again, I think that sort of thing does not happen. Game two, game three, mm-hmm. but the confidence, it's like a collective thing, a book, of mayor, these receivers. I mean, there was a point, I think it might have been the Louisville game, where Javon McKinley, he was dropping every pass left and right. Yeah, I mean, it and right in his hands, too. Yeah, and, and there are times where, where he'll drop those passes, and you're like, what is going on? But, but now it's like he's coming down with acrobatic, 50-50, jumping in the air, falling down as the ball is – almost hitting the ground and he's securing those catches. Um, it's just an impressive feat because I think this team has really grown up. Um, it, it's, it's like if this team played the Notre Dame team from week three, they'd win by like 35. It almost feels <laughs> like, cause it's just a completely different team. And I think that's exactly what you wanted to see because I think we knew week three, week four. Okay. This team's not when, the ACC championship game. This team's not going – they're, they're going to lose by 50 to Bam in the playoff. Oh, no. We didn't the, think that. I thought it, but it, with a progression they've made – Right. Not 50, I'm exaggerating. But the progression they've made, now I think they've got a real chance to do something special. Like, where's this all going? We, we don't – know. It, it was it – was, well, you know, maybe they'll maybe – they'll, Play, they'll play Clemson at home, and maybe maybe they'll give them a game, but they'll lose. But then maybe they'll give them a game in the ACC championship, but they'll lose, and who knows? They, they, maybe they'll make the playoff. They won't. Like, if the season ended today, Notre Dame's in the playoff, obviously. Yeah. Even if Notre Dame loses, I think even if, if, if Notre Dame wins out, they beat Syracuse at home next week, wrap up their home schedule, then they go play that makeup game at Wake Forest, and they win that one, finish undefeated in the regular season. I think regardless of what happens in the ACC championship game, even if Trevor Lawrence becomes the golden god that he's supposed to be against Notre Dame and, Cle- and Clemson rolls, I still think that Notre Dame earns a shot in, in one of the four college football playoff semifinals. They're still a top-four team if they go undefeated and regardless of what happens in Charlotte next month. The only way Notre Dame does not make it is if either, one, they lose two games the rest of the season. Right. right. Not happening. <laughs> not happening. Well, yeah, not, ha- you, not happening. Not happening. Two, possibly, if they lose to Clemson by like 40 points, which, not happening. Not happening. <laughs> Number three, and I actually think this would be extremely interesting. I'd, I'd really like to see how it would play out, is if they lost to Clemson and Florida beat Alabama and then Ohio State won out. Because at that point, 
Florida would be in for sure. You would think Ohio State would be in if they're able to make their Big Ten championship game and, and win that. That's a big but because Ohio State's game against Illinois today is canceled because of COVID. Ohio State COVID outbreak. Ryan Day it, it tested positive. They had a bunch of other players test positive. So now they're they're teetering on the fact that if if they get another, I think if they get another game wiped out because of Corona, I don't know if they can play in the Big Ten championship game. Then then what? Like it's it's really it would be really hard for me to see Notre Dame go what eleven to go eleven and one and not make the playoff because Ohio State went 7-0 or 8-0 and made the playoff. Like, at least play a full season right. to be considered one of the top four teams in the country. Well, it would be especially weird if, yeah, and I've seen people joke, hey, Michigan should just take one for the team and cancel the <laughs> December 12th game. Uh, that would be hilarious. Uh, but, no, the – the thing with Ohio State is if, if they get their season canceled, does a one-loss Indiana get in if they win the Big Ten championship? Does uh, Northwestern get in if, if they run the table? Do you let Texas A&M or Cincinnati in if, if they went out and a Big Ten team is not in the conversation? We know the Pac-12 and the Big 12 are not in the conversation. And so it's either you get two ACC teams, two SEC teams – or all hell breaks loose. And I think Notre Dame taking care of business. They lock up the two seed, most likely, uh, unless Alabama loses. They take care of business and Alabama loses, they're the one seed. Um, but if Florida beats Alabama and Notre Dame loses to Clemson, I'm, I'm just saying it gets a little funky because <laughs> you, you, like, like you'd probably let in Florida and Ohio State. Um, you'd let in Clemson if they beat Notre Dame. And then it'd be between Bama and Notre Dame. And I just – I mean, I'm not saying Notre Dame doesn't make it in that scenario. I think they'd also account for margin of victory. If Bama lost by one point and Notre Dame lost by 20 or vice versa, that might depend on how it goes. But I just think that would create such a brain crunch for the committee. And I don't know. It would be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think – you know, another thing to mention is I think a lot of people, us included maybe, we've been operating on the assumption of looking at it from the perspective of, well, if they lose to Clemson in the ACC championship game, when they lose to Clemson in the ACC championship game, they won't be favored in the ACC championship game. I don't know if we can say that, that kind of stuff anymore because with the way this team has progressed, the way Clemson has looked at times this season – I think Notre Dame could end up being favored in that game. And I think they've got the talent to beat them, Trevor Lawrence included. And, and that's just how great this team is playing right now. And I think Notre Dame could be any team in the country right now. So I don't know if we can speak in those, those kind of terms anymore. I, I agree. Like it's not, it's not a foregone conclusion that Clemson's going to roll Notre Dame in the ACC championship if that's the matchup. And I don't know much, but I do know one thing. Notre Dame is either going to be in L.A. or L.A. Los Angeles or New Orleans, Louisiana, come New Year's Day. NOLA. NOLA. We're, we're, going, we're going to either New Orleans or Southern California to cover this team in a bowl game. I'm, 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 I'm convinced of it right now as we sit here at 11 o'clock on Saturday, November 28th, with Notre Dame going 9-0. Yeah, I mean, it, 
again, it's it could be a season for the ages and the weirdest year, and in <laughs> a lot of years and forever. Yeah. So I mean, it, it it's funny how it took this season for for Notre Dame to to finally break through. But like, man, I I think I saw someone tweet this. It might have been Dan Wilkin, but um, this Notre Dame team is so much better than the 2018 team. Mm-hmm. It tr- it truly is. Like I think if they played the 2018 team now, 2018 team, their defense was special. But their offense, you know, it was good. It wasn't crazy. I think this team wins by. I don't know how much they win by. Maybe it's seven or ten points, but it's it's not going to be like a close game. It's not going to be like a nail biter at the end kind of game. I think this 2020 team wins just because they've got so much more of this like dominant physical overpowering mentality on both sides of the ball where they're the team that controls and dictates the game, the line of scrimmage, both sides of the football. Uh, Back then, I think they had kind of an inexperienced offensive line this year. It's an experienced veteran, great offensive line. And anyways, I just – you, you try to compare them to like 2012, 2018. I wasn't there in 2012, so I'm I'm comparing them to 2018. I just think they're way better than that 2018 team, and that's that's really good when you when you consider what's coming up for this team. You were still getting your learner's perm, driver's permit in, two, in 2012, right? <laughs> that's when I got my driver's license. See, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Let, let me leave, let me let, let me leave with this because you're the recruiting guy and you snuck in a recruiting podcast during the bye week without me last week. Regardless of what happens the rest of the way against Syracuse or Wake Forest or Clemson and after that, and whatever, regardless of what happens with the rest of this recruiting class, is there a bigger recruit for Notre Dame to land, for Brian Kelly to land, than Clark Lee? Like, he's got it, and and people have started on this already – He's got to keep Clark Lee, open the wallet, pay the guy, because what, what I would really hate to see, regardless of what happens the rest of the way, Notre Dame has such a successful season, and then somebody's poaching Clark Lee to become a head coach. Like, as good as this team, as good as they've been, I'd love to see the, them just keep rolling with this defense for another couple of years with Clark Lee. But the question's going to come down to, they finish, they go undefeated, it's going to be really hard for Clark Lee not to look hard at becoming head coach somewhere. Just from my understanding and familiarity with Clark Lee, he does not seem like a guy who, I mean, obviously he's a, he's a competitor, but just with how cerebral he is, mm-hmm. he seems like the type of guy who's wired to want to stay at a program for a long time and to be drawn to a program with the academic standards and the, the thinking and the, the academics of, of Notre Dame. And so I think if there was a, a guy who had the chemical wiring, the makeup to want to stay as a DC at Notre Dame, it would be a guy like Clark Lee. I'm not saying that he will, it's just kind of speculation, but I think he is that type of guy. Um, and you know, whether money does that job or begging or uh, whatever it is, obviously, yeah, Notre Dame's got to do it. They've got to hope that he becomes their Brent Venables. 
<laughs> a guy that's basically their DC for 10 years. Maybe they say, Hey man, you're going to be their next head coach. Just stay here for like three or four more years. <laughs> maybe, maybe you don't say that, but maybe there's a wink, nod, wink, nod. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, well, you know, Brian Kelly, just, just remember Clark, Brian Kelly's not going to coach you forever. Wink, right. Wink. 100%. And I, I mean, maybe they also would want Clark Lee to get experience. Maybe, maybe he's Boston call or not Boston College. Maybe he's Pittsburgh's head coach for a few <laughs> years. And then he comes back to Notre Dame and it all works out. Um, but I think if you're looking in the short term, you want him to stay. And the longer he stays, the better the chances are that they can win a national championship under Brian Kelly. Um, to me, he just – he has really blossomed not just on the field but also as a recruiter and a talent evaluator. Mm-hmm. I think when you first have a coach, you, you can't really judge his recruiting prowess and his – talent development until about year three, year four. Now that he's been in the program for a few years, you are really starting to see how he has hit on three-star recruits like Jeremiah Usakoromoa. And you're starting to see how he's evaluated. This is such a deep position, a linebacker. And so, again, it's not just the adjustments. It's not just the game plans. He's also developing guys. He's recruiting diamonds in the rough kind of guys. And he's just an all around guy that you would want to be coaching your program, whether it be DC or head coach. Can't say better things about this guy. And <laughs> I don't care if they've got to pay him a billion dollars. You, you got to keep him on. I, I don't know what it will take, but you got to, you got to find a way. That's a hell of a pay raise right there, Carter, a billion dollar pay raise. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up. This edition of Pot of Gold Extra Point, we just wrapped it. Notre Dame 31, North Carolina 17. We'll be back next weekend at our usual time on a Sunday, actually, to talk about Notre Dame and Syracuse as the Irish close out the home portion of 2020. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.